0: As the children are being dismissed to their class, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there, it's page 995. I don't have uh, my notes on the screen today. I uh, actually forgot to do that and send it to Mike, so uh, you're going to have to take notes. If you are into the habit of taking notes, you're going to have to take notes uh, without the aid of the outline being on the screen. Uh, I'll try to make that clear as we proceed through the message. Second Timothy is a very unique book. Um, we don't have time to go through all the nuances of the book. But in order for us to jump in at chapter 2, I think we need to understand a little bit about the background of what was happening um, in this time, and then that gives us understanding of what Paul was trying to communicate. Uh, Paul's the author of the book, and uh, Timothy is the, the person to whom he was writing. You'll remember that back in Acts chapter 16 is where Paul met Timothy for the first time. And uh, he became a convert, and he became actually somebody who Paul mentored in ministry. And, Paul, and Timothy was a, was a young pastor that, that Paul spent a lot of time with. And, and Timothy began to show himself, uh, we find in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, where Paul speaks of Timothy and says, for he has proven his worth to Paul. He was somebody that had distinguished himself, and this is to whom the, the book is written, but Paul is, is writing not from uh, a study, he's not writing from a church office, uh, he's writing from a prison cell when he writes this book. Now, when we read the book of Acts, we come to the end of Acts, about chapter 28, or just 27-28, you know, we see Paul going into custody in a Roman prison. Now, the difference, the way the prison is, is described in this book here of 2 Timothy leads us to believe that it is actually a different imprisonment than what Acts 28 describes. Acts 28, we see that Paul is staying in a rented home, whereas when we read through the book of Second Timothy, we don't get that sense. In, in, instead of him describing himself as being in a rented home uh, under house arrest, if you will, that is the first imprisonment, This, what appears to be the second imprisonment, we see in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says that this Onesiphorus has often refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chains. And then in chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, For I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So it seems where, where he's staying, he's being treated differently than what he was prior in the, the Acts 28 uh, imprisonment. In Acts twenty-eight, people could easily visit Paul. People would come to him, and that he would receive guests. And there was there was no prohibi- uh, 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 prohibition about people coming to see uh, Paul. But in again, I turn to back to chapter one of, in sixteen and seventeen of the Second Timothy book. It says, "May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. he was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me." And so this Onesiphorus individual had to search diligently to find Paul, and, and he didn't know where he was. And it, and it seems that's different than the scenario that we'd see in the first imprisonment. Paul had friends all around him in the first imprisonment. Again, I mentioned that in the Acts twenty-eight, but also Colossians four and Philippians one reference that there are people around him, friends around him. But in this imprisonment, this book of chapter Second uh, Timothy chapter four and verse. 11, it says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to this ministry. We see that people are turning away from Paul. We also saw that in chapter 1 of how the people were turning away from Paul. In verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, all who are in Asia turned away from me. And then finally, Paul is confident of his release during the first imprisonment. We read about that that in Philippians chapter 1 and also in chapter 2 of Philippians. But here in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, it says, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we see that Paul is actually not thinking about release at this point. He's not thinking about getting out of jail. He's actually planning for his death here. And so we see that this is probably a different imprisonment. So if you're reading through Acts and you come to the idea of Paul being in prison, and then you read 2 Timothy, or you read Colossians and Philippians, those are the imprisonment that goes with the Acts narrative. But here in 2 Timothy, it appears... This is a worse situation. It appears that Paul is very lonely. It appears that Paul has, has been deserted. It appears that, that, that he is ready to die. And so he picks up a pen and he writes to a man by the name of Timothy. Now what happened in between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that there's tradition that he went to Spain and he ministered the gospel in Spain. And then, so he was away from Rome for a while Now, while Paul was away, a significant event happened on July 19th, AD 64. In Rome, on that day, a fire broke out, and Rome proceeded to burn for six days. And Nero was the emperor. History is a little bit confused about who caused the fire, There are reports that Nero stood on the top of his palace and sang songs while Rome burned. Those are probably not true, but um, there are those legends about this. What is known is that Nero was starting to face some opposition because the city has just burned. And so whether it was Nero or whether it was people under him or someone else, rumors began to circulate that it was the Christians who burned the city of Rome. And with that rumor, the tide turned significantly. While Paul was away, he had been released, and then he was ministering in Spain. And while he was away from Rome, in AD 64, this fire broke out. And so for the next year or so, intense persecution of the Christians ramped up. Over the time, it became increasingly more and more difficult to be associated with a Christian. And so this is probably the reason why that when Paul gets back to Rome, when he travels back to Rome, he's almost immediately incarcerated because he bears the name of a Christian. And he was a leader of the Christian faith. And so he's incarcerated. No longer is he in this house arrest where people can come to him and where he can freely interact with people. He's in a much worse situation, so much that Paul thought for sure his departure was at hand, that he was going to die. And so this persecution had come in this town. And so as he was in prison, he began... To think about what the last words that he was going to say. Now he had to defend himself. We would read about this in chapter four of his defense. He says that first, uh, chapter four verse sixteen. He says that my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now we might want to ask, well, where was Luke then? We just said he just said in chapter four verse eleven that Luke was with him. What happened to Luke? Well, Luke and Timothy would not have been considered uh, eligible to to defend Paul because they would have just been considered accomplices. And so there was no one that was willing to stand up and defend Paul. And so Paul had to be his own defense attorney and his own uh, uh, legal defense. And in the process of him uh, defending himself, in verse 17 it says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And so the the, the death sentence was stayed. He was able to at least not be killed and martyred right away. But he was still kept in prison while the courts decided what to do with him. Church history says that later on, a short time after this, probably within a year or so, Paul was beheaded and died. That is what church history tells us. We don't have that account in the scriptures. But we need to understand that these were the conditions that Paul picked up his pen and he began to write to this young pastor, Timothy. It's not an overstatement to say that, humanly speaking, the church was on the brink of annihilation. It's not an overstatement to say that as Paul began to write to Timothy and began to instruct this young pastor on how to operate and how to live the Christian life, that it was that it was a very precarious time. It was not popular to be a Christian. In fact, It almost equated imprisonment or death, if you were. It's not easy times to live in. So what did Paul have to say to this young pastor? Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And what you had heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul was writing to Timothy to help Timothy live and lead under the persecution that was prevalent of their day. In our text that I just read before us here, Paul gives Timothy three commands to help Timothy be useful for the expansion of God's kingdom in the face of what appeared to be quite possibly the last days of the church. While the specific narrow interpretation of this text is an apostle instructing a pastor, we do not have to be pastors to benefit from or to be instructed by these commands. And before we get into these three commands of this text, I just want to remind us that we do not need commands for what is intuitive to us. We don't need commands. No one has to be reminding you right now, okay, breathe, inhale, exhale, inhale, Okay, you might want to blink now. Okay, inhale, exhale. No one has to remind us of these things. We don't have commands of this because it's intuitive to us. So what we can learn from that is that that which we are given commands for, it must mean that it's not as intuitive as it should be to us. And so these commands that we are going to look at from this text here, we need to understand that we have to work at this. This is not an easy thing that Paul is telling Timothy to do. So if you're taking notes, here's the first command. Command number one, stay rooted in grace. Stay rooted in grace. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus in verse 1. Literally, because of the way the word is written, it means keep on being empowered. It's talking about that this is actually happening right now. He's saying, Timothy, you are being sustained. You are being empowered right now by the grace of God. In the ministry that you're at, you have been brought to this point in your life so far by the grace of God. And what I am going to tell you in the face of persecution, in the face of, of possible death, I am going to tell you keep." Keep on living in the grace of God. There's no hope that we have apart from the grace of God. We must live in the strength that is found only in the grace of God. And following this first command, I believe that the reason why Paul writes this and also in, in the way it is constructed when he originally wrote this, it has the idea that the second two commands that are going to follow are dependent upon the first. And we need to keep that in mind as we go throughout this message today. That we cannot do what follows if we are not empowered by the grace of God. And so, what Paul is telling this young pastor, and he's encouraging him, he says, I want you to continue to be strengthened. I want you to go and find your strength in the grace of God. Grace is an interesting thing. We find several verses all throughout scriptures that teach about this. Let me just give you a few of them John 1, verse 16. John 1 verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, John 1 is the text where in the beginning, John is talking about how Jesus was present at creation, and he's talking about how the part of God's plan was the incarnation, and it says, and he became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then it talks about his ministry was full of grace and truth in verse 14 of John chapter one, and then in verse 16, he says this again, let me read it again, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We need God's grace. In James chapter four, verse six, it says, but he gives more grace. We need God's grace. We need more of God's grace. God is, it is an, it is an appropriate prayer of ours, so we can pray for God to give us more grace. We need it. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, but the grace, by the grace of God I am what I am. Paul was writing this. He says, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, That was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul says, I've worked harder than anyone else. I've been zealous more than anyone else, but it wasn't that that caused success. It's not that that caused me to be who I am. He says, it's the grace of God. So, this idea of grace what is grace? God's grace is, or, or grace is simply unmerited favor. It's, it's getting something that we do not deserve. And so if we we're going to contrast that with mercy, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. I break the law. I deserve punishment. But the police officer shows me mercy and does not write me the ticket for speeding. That's mercy. Grace is the opposite. Grace is getting something I do not deserve. Someone walks up to me afterwards and says, here's a $100 bill. That's grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything for that $100. But it was just given to me freely. And so when we see this idea of grace and how we need to be strengthened by grace, it's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can build up a bank account, if you will, with God. We can't live our lives a certain way to the point of where we think, well, God surely has to bless me now because I've lived this way. That that, that flies in the face of grace. That would be merit. That's the opposite of what grace is. And so when we read these texts all through the Scriptures, and I would encourage you to do a study on the word grace all throughout the Scriptures. Favor would be another word that's often translated, and it's the same word as grace. Grace. And it's based on the nature of the person who is giving the gift. And so when Paul here, he tells the soldier, he tells this, past, uh, this young pastor, he says, I want you to be strengthened, continue to be strengthened in the grace of God. He says, you cannot live your life now nor in the future apart from the grace of God. And you say, well, Jeremy, this kind of makes sense. But again, we are commanded to do things that are not intuitive to us because what is intuitive to us is for us to do it ourselves. For us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and for us to work harder. I've often said this, that my philosophy is, if I come up with a problem, is work hard at it. If that doesn't work, work harder. And if that still doesn't work, work even harder. Okay? That's kind of my nature, that's kind of who I am, is to just work hard and try to figure out something. And while there could be benefits to that, there's a lot of danger to that. Because who am I relying on? Relying on me. And this is not what we see in the scriptures here. I have a quote written in my, uh, in my office on the wall. It's by Robert Murray Machane, who says this. It's a sure mark of grace to desire more. What do you mean by that, amen? It's a... De- it's, it's, it, It's a mark, it's a telltale sign that you have received grace when you know you need more of it. And so as we live this life, we don't have the same persecution that that Paul was looking at and Timothy, what they were looking at, but we are living in a world that is becoming more and more unpopular to become a Christian or to be a Christian. As we live this life, We need to understand we we can only do this by the grace of God. So was the last time you asked God for grace to live this life? Say, God, I need your grace to to go to work today. I need your grace to to be obedient to my parents today. I need grace to survive this school year. I need grace to put up with my adult children. I need grace to, you fill in the blank. Ask God for it. This is what he says, be strengthened by the grace is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I want you to work harder. He says, I want you to be strengthened by grace. Now, God supplies the strength for what he calls us to do. And so whatever God has called you to do, God will give you the strength to do it. And that's through his grace and through uh, his abundant provision. God gives grace, as I said, for you to respect your parents. God gives grace to care for aging parents. God gives grace to be patient with children, both young ones and older ones. God gives grace to work on your marriage. God gives grace to be patient with your supervisor or coworkers. God gives grace to live in a culture that is becoming increasingly more hostile to the gospel. Now, if we say that we can't do those things, if we can't be respectful, if we can't be obedient, if we can't be kind, if we can't uh, work on our marriage anymore, if we can't, whatever it is, we are saying that God's grace is insufficient. Is what we're saying. And so God's grace is sufficient. And so the application here is, that we're talking about intentional relationships, is that if we're going to have intentional relationships, it requires Grace. It requires grace for us to get along. It requires grace for us to interact with people. Number two, if you're taking notes, our second command that we see in this text is this. Command number two, seek mentoring relationships. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's some debate about what he means there when he says in the presence of many witnesses. I don't think we need to make that more complicated than what it is. I think what he's basically just saying there is a lot of people have heard what I've taught. People can verify what I have taught, and there are many people who can be witness to that. And so what you have heard from me that can be verified, uh, not any private interpretation or anything, but the public proclamation of the gospel, I want you to entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so he says, seek mentoring relationships. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's four generations of grace there. First of all, we have Jesus to Paul. Then we have Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and then faithful men to others. And so what he is designing here is, he says, we live in a w- really difficult world. Christianity as we know it, the church as we know it, is, is being attacked, he's saying. And here is what we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on mentoring relationships. He says, I have poured into you, now you need to pour into other people. God has designed us that we should be in a community. From the beginning, God thought it best that man not be alone. From the very beginning, God designed that we needed other people. And that's not always easy. That's difficult at times. I've told people that the older I get, the more of an introvert I become. It it used to be when I was a teenager, you know, I I, I didn't mind being the center of attention. It didn't bother me, uh, uh, all those type of things. But, you know, the older I get, the, 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 the more I like being by myself. I mean, it used to be that I, I would start to go nuts if I wasn't involved uh, with people or people around me. You'd be like, you know, and my older brother was different. My older brother was different. He would, he would be, we, we would be uh, during the summertime or whatever, and I'd be like, hey, let's go outside and play basketball. Let's go outside and play baseball and everything. And he would have a book. And I would say, you know, how can you do this? And, and, and he would just be completely content with reading the book to the point, to the point, my mom had to make rules for me to read and make rules for my brother to go outside and play. And so we would we have to go. And I would just be like, I need to be with my friends. I need to be with my friends. I need to see my friends. And so I'd go down the street. Hey, hey, what are you guys doing? Everything you need. Know, and, and just always had to be with people. But you know what I've learned over, the, to the, over time? Is that people are annoying. Okay? <laughs> All right? And it, it, it's difficult, okay? It's it, you know, I mean, people disappoint you, and people discourage you, and and people have this way of of doing really stupid things, okay? And so, and so. I, the older I get, I'm like, you know, I'm okay being by myself. Now, I understand that people who, who are more introverted, it doesn't mean that they don't like being with people. It just means that they need more alone time to kind of recharge in order to get back into a group setting. I understand that. And I find myself, the older I get, the more I get that way. And, it's, and, and there's some really good things about that. I can study a lot better now. I mean, it used to be, I, I kid you not, I would sit at the desk, and it, it would be just like, you know, study, 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 study. Study, 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 study. And I couldn't get anything done. The older I get, the more I just enjoy silence and a book and reading. And so there's really good things about it. But you know what? God's designed us to be in a community. Now, this doesn't mean all of us need to have the same level of interaction. I understand there's differences there. But but we need to follow this command here. And the only way for us to teach others is to interact with them, right? The only way for us to learn from other people is to interact with them. I told you that God designed it this way. Adam needed Eve. Moses needed Aaron and her. David had his mighty men. Daniel found encouragement from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus had his disciples, but more specifically the inner three. When the disciples were sent out by Jesus, he sent them out in pairs. Paul's labors were made better because of people like Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and Aquila and Priscilla. Basically, the only time we see Paul alone was when he was in prison. And he was lamenting the fact that he wasn't with his team. Barnabas fought with Paul over his passion and belief that John Mark was a worthy teammate and was later vindicated when Paul wrote for all of history to read, He is profitable for me. We saw that in this book right here. What happened there is John Mark left the first missions trip. It was Paul and Barnabas, and they took John Mark with them on the first missions trip. We don't know exactly the reason why, but John Mark went home. He deserted him. Paul, it wasn't three strikes you're out with Paul. It was one strike you're out. Okay? And with Paul, it was like, hey, he deserted us. I mean, it, he's gone. Barnabas was like, no, we need this guy. No, we need this guy. And so they departed company over this very issue. It was a, it was a great debate that they had between the two of them. Later on, in this book here in 2 Timothy Paul sees the value of John Mark, and so we need other people. We need people to sharpen us. We need to be sharpening other people's other people. This is one of the reasons why we do small groups here. I hope you realize that we don't do small groups here. We we haven't relaunched small groups here because of uh, we just need a program or uh, the pure entertainment factor of just getting together. No, the reason, one of the main reasons why we have launched small groups here is because we need, all of us, you and me, we all need community. We all need to build off one another and be sharpened by each other. And I hope you see that need. I hope you sense that need. We need to have this deep sense of need for other people investing in our lives and for us to invest in other people's lives. If we're not influencing, excuse me, if others are not influencing us, is it because we're too proud? Is it because we don't want to get involved? We don't, we don't want to open up? Or we don't want to be too transparent? If we're not influencing others, is it because we don't have anything to teach them? If you have the word of God, of course you have something to teach them. And so, as we see in this text here, he says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust, the faithful men... Not just anyone, but these people who will be able to teach others also. So, who are you influencing right now? If I were to say, and I'm not going to do this, but if I were to say, take out a sheet of paper and write down, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever names of people that you are trying to actively influence for the gospel, that you're trying to do this right here, that you're, you're, you're a Christian who you are trying to influence other people who will be able to teach others also. Could you write down your names, any names on that piece of paper? We need to be involved in this. And this is this is something that is, is taught throughout all of Scripture. In, in Timothy chapter, excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, Paul talks about older women teaching younger women. This is one of the reasons why I, I believe that intergenerational uh, mixing in the church is so important for this reason right here. And we'll talk about another reason in just a minute. As a pastor, I've, basically, I've had people essentially basically tell me, you know, you just need to stay out of my life. And those are always good conversations to have. Uh, you always feel so, so welcomed and uh, appreciated and affirmed when that happens. But, um, you know, I sometimes, and I haven't had the courage to do this yet, but sometimes I just want to say, I can't. I don't have the right to stay out of your life. Now, I understand that, that, that different relationships are different. I understand that. We all can't have the same level of relationship. I get that. But if I'm going to follow this command here in others, I should be seeking to influence you. And if, if you're seeking to influence me for Christ for good, then I need to be open to that. Because this is how God's designed it. Proverbs 27, 17 talks about iron sharpening iron. The fact of the matter is that God designed us to be part of a community. God never designed or desired for man to be alone. Starting way back in the garden. God works not with just individuals, he does, but he works with groups. So if you do notice how groups, he works with groups all throughout the scriptures. I don't have time to go through that, that little study there, but study that. How God works with groups all throughout the scriptures. So I can safely say that it is God's will for you to be mentored by another Christian and for you to be mentoring somebody else. That is what God has called us to do. And so you need to look at your life and say, okay, who's mentoring me? Who am I opening up to? Who am I being vulnerable with? Who am I allowing into my life to influence me? And and guess what? No one's perfect, and people are going to make mistakes, and when we open up and be vulnerable, sometimes it'll be disappointing, and and it'll hurt. But this is what we're called to do. So who is, who is influencing you? Who is mentoring you? And then the other question is, whom are you mentoring? And so the application here is that intentional relationships must include mentorships. So who is God sovereignly placed in your life that needs to be mentored? I will say this before I move to part, the, the third command is this, that mentoring is not a program, Okay. Mentoring is not getting a, a, a certain Bible study and doing it with someone, although doing Bible studies together is wonderful. I'm not, not knocking that. But it's not a program. Mentoring is life-touching life. It's basically living life together. It's intentional living with one another. I look at the people who have mentored me and who are currently mentoring me. They just allow me to live life with them. They just allow me to, to kind of ask questions, and, and they're not threatened when I ask questions. And, and when I say, hey, whoa, whoa, what about this? They're, they're completely open. We're just living life together even though we don't live in the same place. Mentoring's not a program. It's life-touching life. So whose lives are rubbing off on you and who, whom are you influencing? Number three, the third command in our text, you can see in verse three there, it says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So command number three, Share the burden of suffering. This is what Paul, remember, let me remind you of the context here. Persecution's ramping up. This is really bad. I mean, I mean, Paul is ready to die. He's going to ask Timothy to move on to a location of ministry and later on in the book. And he's he's trying to set things up, and he says, okay, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if, if God's just going to come back, and this church deal was only about 30 years, I, I or, or less than that, really. He says, I don't know what's going to happen here, but here's what you need to know. And one of the things that he says you need to know is you've got, to share in the sufferings. You've got to be willing to suffer. And that's another study that you'll want to do as you go through scriptures and talk all about how Jesus and the disciples and the apostles talked about suffering. It's part of the Christian life. Now, Paul's point here is that he is imploring Timothy to share the burdens of being a Christ follower. Paul was in prison and it wasn't looking good for him. Paul wanted Timothy to put aside his natural fear and instead, share in the sufferings of the gospel. Now, when I say you need to be ready to suffer, no one is, is excited about that. You know, if I were to say, you know, okay... You know we're going to have uh, a special service uh, uh, tonight at six o'clock. Hope you're all there. And we are just going to see. I mean, it is going to be intense suffering. All right. I mean, this is going to be this is going to be this is going to be level ten suffering here. All right. Okay. So six p.m. Show up ready to suffer. I, I, you know, I I don't know that I would show up. Okay. <laughs> I don't think too many people would show up there because suffering is not something. That we look forward to and I'm not saying that we should look for obvious intentional ways to be in pain but what I am saying is that we need to share the sufferings that go along with being a Christ follower we have just in the news this last week um, city is escaping my name uh, my mind, uh, name of the city but um, ISIS went in and um, told through loudspeakers, I said, if you're Christian, you have three options. You can convert to Islam. You can pay us a bunch of money. There's actually four options. You can leave or you can die. Those are your four options. And if you leave, you can take the clothes on your back and that's it. Your houses, your possessions are ours. So they went through the city. This, this happened this last week. Okay? This, this, I'm not talking about ancient history here. I'm talking about last week where believers, brothers and sisters, heard over a loudspeaker in their town as they sat in their houses. You have four options. Convert, pay us, leave, or die. I don't know exactly how but I think we need to share in the sufferings of brothers and sisters. I think we need to be willing to stand for the gospel. I think we need, if we, if we have freedoms here, to stand for the gospel and, and, and promote the word of God, we should probably take advantage of that. Because they don't have that. And so these people, they, Paul is telling Timothy, share in the sufferings. The suffering that Paul is talking about here can come in many forms. It doesn't have to be just... The physical, that is one, outright physical persecution for the gospel, and that's the primary means of the text here. But suffering can come in other forms than that. Being misunderstood by non-Christians or Christians. Being rejected by Christians and non-Christians. Being humiliated by Christians and non-Christians. See, now that's more the suffering that, that we're facing right now, of standing for biblical truths and being maligned for it and being rejected and are we willing to share in the sufferings of being a Christ follower now you gotta understand I, when I preach this right now I, I preach this with you no know, joy and with um, a sense of nervousness because I realize what I'm doing I'm standing before a group of people and I'm saying you all need to be willing to suffer for Jesus. And if I'm willing to stand here publicly on record, on recording it can be downloaded later it's on live stream right now then I better be willing to live that. And I don't know what that means. But I do know this remember let me go back in our message. The first command makes the second two possible. Remember the first command? Be strengthened by the grace of God. When I say here what the text, when I'm preaching what, what Paul wrote to Timothy here, and I say you need to be willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, what I am also saying is that that's only possible by the grace of God. I'm not saying that you need to, okay, puff our chest up. We're strong Christians here. Bring it on. That's not what I'm saying at all. I pray, I pray that if I heard over the loudspeakers that I had four options, I pray that I would not bow the knee to false idols. I pray that. You say, well, wait a minute, aren't you sure that you wouldn't do that? Well, I've read enough church history to know that there's a lot of preachers who thought that they would stand, and when persecution came, they didn't. I don't know all the reasons. I don't. I, that's between them and God. I, I don't understand that. But all I know is that I want to be on my knees, figuratively and literally, just saying, "God, give me grace to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ." And this is what we need to pray for as a church. We need to pray that God would enable us to stand firm for the truth of God's word and of Jesus Christ. So we need to share this burden of suffering. The fact of the matter is, is that if we're going to be effective ministers of the gospel, we're going to have to mix up with people. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to interact with people. And this goes back to the, our second point here of how that often it is difficult to interact with other people. And, 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 and people can be annoying, as I said. And people can be difficult to deal with here. But what he's saying here is share with, come alongside of other people who are going through difficult situations and be willing to share that suffering with them. I said that people are annoying, and people are difficult, and people are frustrating, and people do stupid things that have consequences for their actions. But people are also hurting, and people are discouraged, and people are lost, and people need Jesus Christ. People are our neighbors, and we are to love them as much as we love ourselves. And so when we see this text here, it says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That means we need to go out into the field, we need to go out into the battlefield, and we need to be willing to serve alongside of people and take the suffering that comes with being a soldier of Jesus Christ. This is one reason why I believe intergenerational relationships are so important within the church. Because it's not just wisdom being passed down from an older generation to a younger generation, although that's very important. I do believe it's important for teens and older people to interact and, 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 and for younger kids and, and adults to interact. I do believe that intergenerational ministry is very important because it, it teaches, particularly on the teen level and the senior citizen level, it teaches them to share in the sufferings of one another. I, I, I'm beginning, I'm on, I mean, I'm on the very, very beginning stages of seeing that it stinks to get older, okay? You know, for a long time, that's all you want to do is get older. You want to get older. You want to get older. You want, you, know, you want to get older. Then all of a sudden, it's like, I want to be younger. I want to be younger. <laughs> I want to go back. There are certain sufferings that you deal with that we don't understand. Or younger. And I think it's important for younger people to come alongside of older people and start to, to share with that. When an older person has a hard time walking down steps, I really think it's important for a teenager or a younger person to come alongside and help them down the steps. What are they doing in that moment? They're sharing with the sufferings of that person. I believe it's important for an older person to deal with a younger person and talk to them because, let me tell you, teenagers today are facing temptations and facing difficulties that you never imagined when you were in high school. It's important for you to come alongside and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. We have two seniors that graduated. They're going to be going to state schools here in just a few weeks here. How many of you are praying for them? See, uh, us older people who know what, what the temptations and the trials are there, and we know what, is, what, is, what they're going to face, we need to be ministering with them, and that is sharing the sufferings with them and saying, look, I know that it's going to be difficult. You're going to be balancing work. You're going to be balancing school. You're going to be balancing this, this, this idea of relationships and all these things, and you're trying to figure things out. I want you to know I'm praying for you. If there's anything I can do to help you, I want you to know I'm here for you hey, why don't I take you out to dinner? We can talk about this. You see, when we talk about sharing with sufferings of other people, a lot of times we go right to persecution. We go right to the sword. And that is there. But also, it's also sufferings when you're trying to live for Jesus Christ in a, in a in a school that is hostile to the gospel. It's suffering to try to figure out how do I do this? How do I how do I remain pure in my life and in, in, in my thought process? How, how do I do this? I mean, and don't you think that someone at a younger age could benefit from people coming alongside them, saying, "Look, I've been living for forty years in the workplace now, and I've got a boss that is just, I mean." Is so difficult, but let me tell you how God has given me grace to operate in that situation. That's sharing sufferings. You come alongside and you're saying, "Hey, I understand you're in a difficult spot." But too often, what happens in churches is that we get little pockets here, little cliques, and, and little groups, and they don't they don't interact. And also, what happens too a lot of times in churches is that people are hurt. I've been hurt in church. Uh, I, I, I've been deeply wounded by people in church. But you know what happens a lot of times is when we get hurt or we get wounded is then we become um, we, we become self-focused. And we say, you know what, we start to protect ourselves. We're afraid to get hurt. We want safety, we want security, and we're not going to let people in. We're not going to let people in. No, 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 no. You said this a long time ago. No. And we start, we start building little, little walls around us. And we think that unity, and, and I'm working on a message for this, so get ready. It um, won't be now. <laughs> but um, we think that unity in church is the absence of fighting. And it's not. There's a lot of people that can get along and be nice to one another. It doesn't mean they're unified. And so we need to be, as ministers of the gospel, as, as Christians, as Christ followers. we've got to be willing to share in the sufferings. We've got to be willing to be mentoring relationships. And you see how all this is coming together? What Paul is talking about is have intentional relationships. Have intentional relationships with people. And there's people sitting in this room right now that could help you. And they don't have to be older than you. Enter those relationships. How can you be helping other people? And so as we look at this text, let me just summarize it this way. We're too, we need to put aside the fear that paralyzes us too many times. Too often we're too concerned, like I said, with protection and safety. We're afraid we'll get hurt emotionally, financially, or even physically. We're often afraid that we'll be a failure so we don't interact with people because we feel like that maybe we'll fail them we won't have the words to say. So the question we need to ask ourselves is so what are you willing to risk in order to influence others for Christ? I once had a teen in my youth group, not here, another ministry, who told me that she wanted to go to a foreign country to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was a sophomore in high school. Over a period of time, I remember praying with her, I remember talking with her, and, and over the course of six or seven months or so, she just... That resolve became more and more what she wanted to do. There was one problem, though. Her mom was too afraid. Her mom did everything to discourage her and put guilt on her. Literally, her mom was too afraid to trust Jesus. And to my knowledge, this girl has never gone anywhere in obedience to what God, what she felt God was calling her to do because of fear. Because she feared her mom more than God. And her mom feared the unknown. Fear doesn't help us. The only fear that does help us is a fear of God. And so if we're willing to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our eternal state, why can't we trust Jesus to give us grace to deal with some suffering here in Wisconsin? And so I, I just encourage us that intentional relationships are not for the faint of heart. And this is why we need grace. So, I'm going to ask us that we would live our lives as Christians in God's grace. Cry out to God for more grace this week. Living the Christian life requires mentorships. Seek out people to influence you and then whom you can influence. And finally, living the Christian life requires risk. Share in the suffering that is promised to Christ's followers. But knowing that God's grace will see you through it. Let us pray. Father, this is a a difficult topic in a lot of ways. I, even in my preparation for this, and even now as I've been teaching, I just pray that it would be helpful. You know, I, even now my mind's racing, Father, of of things I could have said, should have said, and all that stuff, but we trust you that you'll take the word and, and use it for your, your work. But I do want to ask you, Father, I pray that we would seek out relationships, very intentionally, relationships that would encourage us and help us and to whom we can influence. And Father, there's people here today that they're not even a believer, they're not even a Christ follower yet. I pray that that would change today. We're praying for your mercy, and of course, we're praying for your grace, because your grace is sufficient. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.